We're human too, you know. Eyes, teeth, hands, blood. Exactly like you. There really isn't any telling you apart, is there? Absolutely identical in every respect. I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick, gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. There's always an alternate. Lily's the best choice. No, but she wants my role. Every dancer in the world wants your role. No, this is different. She's after me. She's trying to replace me. Nobody's after you. No, please believe me. Here at the Lucas Clinic, we strive to bring you closer to celebrity than ever before. With samples drawn directly from the source, you can be connected in ways you never imagined. Tell him you know me. You must know me. But this is Mr. Pellet. What do you want with him? I am Pellet. I am Pellet. This is uh, this is my friend Anna. She's she's also an actress. Have I seen you in anything? No, I would be surprised. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he'll tell you the truth. We're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about these two films. Lookalikes. Lookalikes. <laughs> oh, um, my gosh. I had so much fun watching Face Off, I have to say. I know. I, pr- I had to stop myself live tweeting it because it was just so... It was It's w- probably one of the most bonkers films we've ever discussed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I saw your tweet about the hair, the cutting of the hair. That really upset me. (laughs) It made me laugh so much. It was brilliant. I wish you had live tweeted now. I I maybe uh, maybe like in a couple of months when I'm ready to watch it again, I will live tweet it because there were just so many things that... But yeah. this, that was, I'm now watching Face Off, I don't know, it's the smallest thing to be annoyed about, but the fact that they cut John Travolta's hair after they have removed his face and before they attach Nicolas Cage's face, little bits of hair may fly into the exposed tissue is very upsetting. <laughs> it's like, why would the hairdressers be in the operating theatre? Exactly. It's like, it was kind of like in Miss Congeniality when they're like giving her like a wax and making her eat celery and like doing her hair and highlights and everything all at the same time. But it was like <laughs> Miss Congeniality, but with like a gory operation. It's It just made, it made no earthly sense. Nothing about the film made any sense at all, but no. it was also amazing. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Solid gold entertainment. <laughs> so camp. like Oh, yeah. So camp. Oh, oh my amazing. god like yeah brilliant I actually think I was thinking about the order of things mm-hmm. and maybe I'd like to finish off with face off because um it, it's it, it was uncanny to me how much both the double life of Veronique and and face off were I could I could really find connections with both of them in Otto Rank's book the double <laughs> yeah I started reading it I haven't finished 
It actually really reminded me of um, there's a podcast called The Secret History of Hollywood, oh, okay. um, which I really enjoy. And they did a series on Val Luton, the producer of um, Cat People, I Walk With a Zombie, hour and a half episodes kind of narrating the story of his life. Oh, wow. um, but in the beginning of every episode, because Val Luton is like originally Russia, like a Russian emigre, mm-hmm. um, they tell he te- they tell a story that would have been like a story from his childhood, mm-hmm. and one of them is like identical to the story that the story in Otto Ranks the Double oh, um, wow. about the man whose shadow asks to you know go off on its own and then becomes kind of more powerful than him eventually, kind of relegates the man to the sh- like to shadow status and you know tr- attempts to get married and live a life that story is in the beginning is in of the, the book episodes. what year was that released what that film was it quite an early like a silent or something well he also did the seventh vic- is it the seventh victim one of the films in mike's uh, occult series that's right um so they're kind of like 19 19- 50s I guess oh the 50s yeah okay yeah yeah really interesting because I was actually thinking about like today's episode so obviously going forward from what we discussed last time with twins it probably is the right moment to talk about Otter Rank a little bit just to kind of establish him as theoretical framework of our, of our <laughs> whole series in a way by the way, he did also publish a short article in 1914, which sort of prefigures his ideas and research on the double. It's, it's, it's not as developed, obviously, as the book, but Freud was very impressed with that. And he, he refers to it a lot, to that paper from 1914 in, his, in Freud's own paper, the, the Uncanny, which was pu- mm-hmm. pu- published five years later. But yeah, Otto Rank, I mean, he was a really interesting person. He was an Austrian psychoanalyst. He was born in Vienna. He was one of Freud's closest colleagues for 20 years. Prolific writer. He was the managing director of Freud's publishing house, which is cool. And he was very much a part of that inner circle, like the Wednesday group of doctors who would meet with Freud once a week at his apartment, um, where they would discuss psychoanalytic ideas and it was like basically the first psychoanalytic institute you know god Um, i'm just so envious of that time before you know everyone had a myriad distract of distractions (laughs) and responsibilities can you imagine keeping up a weekly date at a friend's house i know like in this day and age no absolutely monthly is pretty much impossible yeah, I know. It was so cool that they were so focused and dedicated and it became such a constant in their life. Mm-hmm. Like they just knew every Wednesday they were at Freud's apartment. They, all these people would just crowd into this small space in, in Vienna. And it was just, um, it must have been exhilarating to be a part of like this group of people who were just inventing as they were going along, really. Yeah. But yeah, he, out of rank, like he really believed in the psychoanalytic significance of the uncanny. So he was very drawn to the concept of the double. And, you know, he described uh, the experience of being faced with your double or any doubling situation as kind of a very unnerving and eerie thing. And the book, when it was published in 1925, really looked at the doppelganger as a cultural phenomenon, sort of tracing the motif and collective psychology and employing ethological research and referring to anthropological examples like right through the, the, the whole way. 
But really what concerns me, and I think what's relevant to our discussion today, is how Auto Rank noticed this shift that took place when the, originally in his earlier findings, kind of earlier people in history ac- across cultures regarded the interaction with the double as a positive thing. Like it's, mm. it's, it was as if it was like a guardian angel sort of uh, guiding you or it was a benevolent force, a reminder you know, that you, you were protected or looked, you know, looked after in some way. But then something really changed. Suddenly, like in, in more recent times, it seems, the double is becoming the opposite, you know, a reminder of death, like bad luck or some evil force. You know, that's what's really the, the, the core of this book for me is how he traces this shift that happened. And he's really wondering why. Why have we gone from thinking of the double as a positive thing to something ominous? And he comes up with all these great examples, you know, to do with like our own reflection in a mirror or shadow as, you know, thought of as a double. In this respect, the doppelganger is intimately related to our own, you know, original self, completely inseparable, but meaning something a little bit dark or, you know, a little bit warped. Mm. And, and I love also his literary references, uh, you know, to Edgar Allan Poe. He does yeah, mention really William Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Oscar Wilde, you know, the, the portrait of Dor- Dorian Gray, of course, Dostoevsky's book, The Double. And he starts to really uh, kind of hone in on this paranoid state revolving around the persecution of the ego by its double. And this is what reveals a split in the personality. So here... The, the doppelganger is now acting as a precursor or a metaphor of an opposition, which the original subject entails in himself. Um, so it's basically saying that the more we've become advanced over time in history, be- we've become more sophisticated at telling stories and developing mythologies and folklore. Mm. And in doing so, we're getting in touch with our darker side. And that's actually the reason why the stories take a darker turn. It's a, Maybe it's a positive thing. We're delving deeper and the deeper we go, the more uncomfortable things we find. And so mm. the double becomes a really good accessory, you know, or facilitator of expressing those stories. That's really interesting. As you were saying, you know, the difference between the past and, you know, how we think of the double now. I was wondering mm. if it was maybe something to do with um, sort of systems of like abundance societies mm. versus like scarce, scarcity societies. Yeah. You know, societies where we're all kind of in competition with ourselves and one another mm. versus like societies where they just kind of lived. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That could be a huge part of it. That's probably one of the biggest factors where mm. we're coming across the systemic or, or structural violence, whereas, you know, previously when we were more living in a more kind of isolated way or in smaller groups, or maybe just with our family, those things didn't necessarily apply. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I thought it was really interesting, like when we picked these two films uh, to, to discuss today with lookalikes, The Double Life of, of Veronique applies to the earlier findings for, from Otto Rank. The possibility that you could be duplicated somewhere else is like a nice thing. It's like it's comforting in a way in a, in a troubled world, mm. <laughs> whereas in Face Off, it's, it's something else. You know, it's, it's, it's more menacing. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, do you want to start with uh, the double life of Veronique or yeah. the, the double vie de Veronique? La double vie. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so um, La double vie de Veronique, 1991. A young Polish singer named Veronica goes about her life until one day she notices a French tourist who looks exactly like her taking photographs from a bus. Shortly after this event, Veronica dies in the middle of a performance. The film's focus then switches to Veronica's French doppelganger, Veronique, who is experiencing a deep existential sadness and is drawn to a puppeteer she meets in her work as a music teacher. Mm, yeah, that's perfect. All, that's, yeah, it's very hard to synopsize this film, so that's as far <laughs> as I went. No, that's excellent. Starring the, the gorgeous Irene Jacob. Wow, mm -hmm. she's so beautiful. I wish I had seen this film in the cinema. I only have ever seen it on, I have a DVD copy of it. Did you mm -hmm. ever see it on the big screen? No, never. This is the first time I've watched it. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never seen it what before. Did you, what did you think of it? I thought it was amazing. Like, it definitely made me think that I wish I'd see, wished I'd seen it on a big screen. I know. I was unprepared for the level of um, just positivity from it. I didn't yeah. expect it to be so kind of like radiant and sensual. Yeah. Um, it. I was, I, and I haven't, it's been a long time since I've seen that on film. Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was it was huge um it was definitely the antithesis of face off yeah <laughs> <laughs> couldn't find a film farther away oh yeah that is true not um, not the not the most obvious double bill <laughs> no definitely not definitely not in this in this scenario um evil like evil angelic versus evil twins yeah and i did find it quite religious yes um the film so yeah that was kind of my main takeaway from it I just have such a fondness for the director in general Christoph Kieslowski mm -hmm. um I loved his film Three Colors Blue yeah um, I just love the mood that he creates and his use of classical music he works very closely with composers and is very involved in the creative process of the music well that's um, what I was thinking because I've only seen this in blue mm. um but I was thinking is you know is his double a musician like is he ah, yeah. you know he's like someone that's so <laughs> he's like a filmmaker but he's so vehemently is interested in music and you know a lot of his all of his characters are musicians mm -hmm. uh, or composers or work in music in some way or have some kind of proximity to music Mm. Um, it's just so strange that he's just not a musician I know yeah you're right you're right that, that's a good way of putting it that his mm. double is is a composer or yeah. a musician whereas I think John Woo's double is stunt doubles <laughs> oh yes yeah oh there's so much about stunt doubles um, I know <laughs> yeah. this movie is like the perfect watch for anyone who just wants to like calm the fuck down or something mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to put it um It's it's just so I love the chill vibes in it. It's so like it kind of lulls you into a state of calm for me anyway. Mm. Um, I love the color grade changes and just it's very, very beautiful to look at. And the themes are obviously like really fascinating, like the dealing with identity and intuition mm. um, through these two characters, you know, the Polish choir soprano and her double Veronique who's a French music teacher 
and the, it's just the fact that they they don't know each other but share like this mysterious bond that transcends language and geography mm-hmm. it's as if they're like like long lost twins almost you know because it, it, it seems like they feel each other's sadness or there's some like deeper intuitive connection actually i wanted to ask you so it's, it's definitely not irene jacob singing right <laughs> like when, when she's I really don't when she's performing so. no i don't think it was almost lynchian the the scenes of her performing because I expect her to stop stop doing it and the voice to continue wow yeah that is true yeah (laughs) yeah like in Club Silencio yeah it's a lot like that it's totally yeah her voice is I mean I think the whole I mean I think that's deliberate Yeah, yeah um yeah because you know people who have a creative gift sometimes Mm. tend to ascribe their gift to like a higher power and they're just a Mm. channel and I think that this is that this that's what this film is about to a certain extent it's about not knowing where the things inside of you kind of come from Mm -hmm. Um, and it's maybe kind of like a fan fiction theory of um, why all of those like strange little intuitions and like (laughs) coincidences happen in life like once I went and did a training day at a uh, American lingerie company that mm-hmm. I only worked at for two weeks. It was so hellish. Mm. Um, and in my training day, there was a girl who was there and I like said something to her, spoke to her and she looked at me like she hated me. Okay. And it was the most bizarre experience of just someone who Im- just did not like me immediately right um and that happens in life sometimes yeah you will and I was there's that scene where she you know where Veronique go is goes to Paris uh where the Polish Veronica has been previously yeah and the same woman who disliked um Veronica, Veronica. gives Veronique like this dirty look <laughs> yes. um, yeah and it's not like it's just I don't know I think we're so extrasensory as humans yeah. And there was something, there was clearly something about me that this girl didn't like. And yeah. it was, and it was instinctual and immediate. Mm-hmm. And it's totally, and if we got really deep into both of our like history and psyche, we would understand it. But I don't know that this is kind of like a playful explanation of oh, wow. those, you know, of our kind of extrasensory abilities that maybe we're not like deeply sensing something that is like troubling or upsetting yes. or really attractive in the other person maybe there are just loads of us running around like making friends and enemies wow (laughs) okay I love that idea that should be a film totally like like a very much more directly uh because I feel like in this in Kieslowski's film it's very covertly done Mm -hmm. but uh kind of like your concept better (laughs) well I just see it's done a detail that I really related to but I have been writing about love in the last Mm. couple of weeks and about and I'm very fascinated with the idea that who we're attracted to is kind of predestined, not by fate or God or anything like that, but just by the something that we absorb before we even have a clear memory of it. Wow. You know, that like a, a lot of what happens in our life is just like a search for familiarity. Yeah. Um, to like replay the same um, relationships and dynamics that we've become comfortable with before we even know that we're mm. in a dynamic. Um. So, and all of yeah. this would have been repressed, so we're not conscious of it. Exactly, so we're not conscious of it. But maybe there is, may, like, that's the theory. Uh-huh. And that's the theory that I really live life by, that a lot of the things that happen to me, um, you know, 
I can't change them until I've gone through them enough times that yeah. I've learned something that is imperceptible to me. Mm. Um, but maybe there's a, like a sort of uh, super supernatural theory instead, which is wow. there's loads of different me's <laughs> and they're all responsible oh my for my problems. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of lookalikes running around. Yeah. Um, Oh my god! I, well, I love both concepts. Um, my 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 Freudian uh, side loves the first one you said. That's so that's so beautiful. I can't tell you. I just love the way you phrased it. Um, and then my kind of like dystopian uh, fantasy side loves the second one. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's true. Um, in the in this case, the, I mean, the plot in this film is so minimalist mm. that it does invite a lot of fantastical interpretations even just from the way it opens you know with like the upside down composition of the of the first image and the two little girls you know having their it's like they're living really almost parallel lives yeah this is the thing this film really pr played a trick on my mind because I was convinced when I first watched it that they had two different actors playing like the Polish lady and the French lady. Oh, wow, really? That's how much I was convinced that they they had to have been different. I mean, the only difference is that Irene Jacob cut, cut her hair. Like she just got a haircut <laughs> to like distinguish herself. I was so captivated by the world of this film that I was like, wow, so they really got two different actors, you know, who looked a little bit similar. The only other time I've ever had that weird uncanny feeling only to then realize, like, reading the cast list that, in fact, it was the same actor. And then it really made me feel, like, twisted is when I watched um, Woody Allen's film Melinda and Melinda. Mm. And that's a very uncanny film as well. You know, could have easily been in this category about um, two, two stories that start off the same way, but one is a tragedy and the other is a comedy. Mm. And the, the same actor plays the, the the main you know the the the, the principal uh, character in both stories and when I first watched that I was like wow the, those two actresses look so similar you know it's unbelievable <laughs> you know? and then I just read the cast list and I'm like oh my god it was the same woman you know <laughs> I had something a little similar the other day I watched uh, The Nun with my flatmate on Netflix because <laughs> we just were in the mood for like a great we'd watched a couple of really terrible horror movies Mm. and it, we, I just got the new sofa and we'd only watch bad movies on the sofa so we were like let's watch Excellent. them and we'll have fun <laughs> we know it's going to be good I love the Conjuring movies I think they're fantastic. oh yeah they are um, great and so you know it's um obviously it's Vera Farmiga in yes. the Conjuring films and so I was watching The Nun and I was thinking I know these films are connected they're in the same kind of universe mm. so maybe so like this is this nun girl is this girl um Vera Farmiga's character when she's young um mm -hmm. like it's just, and I was like maybe that's she's got the same name the dates don't but I was like why would they spend all that money <laughs> making her face look so much like Vera Farmiga's face like all of their like CGI budget must have gone on this kind of this strange like face merge that they've done with this actress <laughs> and Vera Farmiga and why would they do that if they're not supposed to be the same person and I was like googling like you know none like the none um like CGI effects the none like face CGI effects it took me a while to understand that's 
that's Vera Farmiga's sister. Oh my god. Uh, but I was just like, why Why have they done this? Why have they <laughs> done this to her face? Like, what an amazing, weird thing. Does anyone else know about this? And, and then I realized they're just, wow. they're not, they have nothing to do with each other. They're just sisters. They're, just they're not sisters. supposed to be playing the same character at all. Oh um, my God. Do you think that casting was done intentionally to provoke that reaction? I don't know. But if it wasn't intentional, then it was a mistake. Because yes. all I thought about the entire time is, are they the same person or aren't they? And how did they make this person look so much <laughs> like that person? But, oh my God. And if you put them together, I would never say they have the same face. No. But just with with the absence of Vera, is she called Tamissa? Tam- Tam- what is her name? Taisa Farmiga. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is a, that must have been a very strange sensation trying to like because I know exactly what you mean. Um it's like you're trying you're watching the movie, you're processing all the information about it and there's also this other p- part of your brain trying to resolve the mystery of the performer. Like that happened to me watching um Orphan because mm. I was like is she really young? Like is she you know, is she an adult? Did, what did they do in this scene? Did they make her look shorter? You know, like just even if it's not nothing to do with lookalikes, it's like just the mystery of the performer is a fascinating yeah. rabbit hole to fall down while you're watching the movie. I just thought it was such a testament to how, um, you know, what we see is just so fluid and slippery. Yes. Because the fact that it occurred, that the first thing I thought was, oh, they've done something to this actor's face digitally. Yeah rather than this actor might be related to that actor. Uh, because, you know, you can genetically make people look the same. You don't have to do it through a computer. Or maybe yeah. they use the face-off operation. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe poor Vera Farmiga is, like, lying faceless in a lab, like, waiting for them to finish shooting the nun. Poor thing. With just a thin little veil of gauze. Yeah, with just some gauze. And people keep coming in to give her a haircut. <laughs> little bits of hair get in the course oh my god (laughs) yeah definitely triggered ocd in me Um, horrible it was so horrible (laughs) but yeah like it, it is it is a very interesting device if a filmmaker can use it consciously Mm. Um, and I don't know like there's something about me it really freaked me out when I read the casting for the double life of Veronique and I saw oh my god it's the same woman why did I think and then I went back to it and I'm like yeah it is literally her like <laughs> it's not even how could I think it was anybody else I think but I kind you- of ruined that for myself because I expected their lives to go in tandem rather than the film to be with one and then be with another one so ah. like throughout the first 10 minutes I was like which one is she <laughs> but it was just the one <laughs> It was all the same one. So, yeah, I kind of, I shouldn't have read the synopsis before I watched it because yeah. I, I just couldn't figure out who I was watching for a lot of the film. I think I might have to go back and rewatch it. I mean, it is a very unique story in in using like this doubling technique where the timeline is the way that it is here. Like Veronica, we see the Veronica sequence, which is relatively short compared to the the, the French lady's story. And then she does die while singing. So, so that's that's important based on what you said before about the artistic element playing yes. a strong role here, um, because the, the the piece of music that she was singing is is then the music that Veronique is teaching in her music class, mm. and 
it's just this kind of strange, mysterious bond that they share through the music that makes it interesting. I guess also the relationship with the puppeteer makes me think that you're probably correct when you speculate that there must be a, a religious theme to this film. Because, you know, like when the puppeteer says to Veronique that like he has he has two two puppets. Yeah. And they they both look the same. They resemble each other. And she asks, why do you have two? And he says, because they get damaged easily. So I I need a replacement. <laughs> and I wondered whether this was just kind of like God was the the puppet master. And yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So he's kind of endowed one person with this tremendous gift or some kind of sensibility, but the world is too harsh for that person to survive too long mm. and you, you easily get worn out. So you need, a, you need a double. You need someone who looks like you and who's, li- who's very much like you, not just in appearance, but in, your, in like their soul. And they feel the same things as you do. So you can be there. I don't know, replace. Oh, I wonder how my more talented double is doing. <laughs> Please. I yeah. I feel like it couldn't work because I would have seen her on social media by now. <laughs> or maybe she's talented because she resists the drawer of social media and dedicates her life entirely to her craft, whatever it may be. Oh, she's off the grid. She's off the grid. There's definitely there, you're you're totally on the right track. Like I was wondering why, you know, even in the beginning, one of them is mm-hmm. looking at stars and the mm-hmm. other one is looking at leaves. And oh, so yeah. one of them's like really kind of this like earthly connection and one of them has this kind of spiritual, like transcendent connection. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of them has this like incredible gift and then the other one has kind of a more prosaic gift yeah, of being able to right. teach music. Um, I wonder if it was maybe something to do with like the short lifespan of like your prime, maybe Mm -hmm. your creative, but you know how some people don't have often when people get older, they stop producing so much Mm. great work. There's kind of a a lifespan of genius almost Mm. um, before people just get tired and, and, you know, maybe become happier or less obsessive, less dedicated when Veronica dies, Veronique like immediately gives up music lessons. I don't know. I can't it's I can't quite work out, but it definitely did feel like something to do with creativity. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um I, I was kind of thinking about Veronique's dad, you know? Mm. And he, is he like a perfume maker or something? Like what's yeah. his <laughs> such a random he, like, gig? <laughs> You know, it really reminded me of Disney films because, uh, you know, Disney films tend to have this like absent mother mm. and like caring father dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not my that's not my um, theory. Someone I watched someone's dissertation presentation um, who within the year above me at my uh, film masters. Oh yeah, that, that was their dissertation: absent father, absent mother, caring fathers in Disney. Um, uh-huh. And it was, and both both Veronicas have don't have a mother, and they have like a really kind That's father. Right. That is true. Um, so, and the perfumier father kind of reminded me of Belle's father in Beauty and the Beast, who's like oh. a failed inventor, because um, <laughs> he has all these different perfumes that he's like trying, and she's like, "Oh, it's not as good as the last one." That is true. This add definitely to the fairy tale vibe of this film. Yeah, yeah, it was very fairy tale. A father like that. Yeah, that's true. Um, like he, you know, when she enters his home and she's looking for him and he's in the bath. 
he's in the bathroom and the door is closed and he she touches his chair or something that she, that he's like reupholstering and he says don't touch my chair like mm-hmm. he has this sixth sense and he knows what she's gonna do it's there's a lot of like extra sensory stuff going on in this film where people are like uh responding intuitively yeah and um, how all the little kids are crying when they're watching the oh yeah puppet show. Like they're really upset because the puppet's broken its leg that's right um and yeah I think that's like it is about just like deeply sensitive li- little people <laughs> like oh yeah yeah but actually in that scene Veronique can see the puppet the puppeteer or yeah. the puppet master right so that's interesting to me as well it makes me think that you know the childlike spirit of the audience is like engrossed with the performance but she's looking for something behind the scenes like she is looking for that uh, vital layer that controls everything Mm. so she has this questioning mind or something I mean the whole business with like the the clues being sent in the post um (laughs) you know and like basically having her go to Paris to meet this guy then she like runs off you know Mm. and then they end up in this flat and he's he's going through her purse (laughs) yeah that scene, especially when he he's looking at the, these images, you know, that she's kept in her bag. Was it her trip to Krakow or something? That's where obviously Veronica did happen to see the woman in the bus and she seemed to be startled by the resemblance. Mm. Um, but the French woman didn't, didn't spot her right away. She just happened to take a picture. And the guy's like, oh, there you are. You're wearing, you know is that you in the coat and she's like that's not my coat i remember when i first saw that movie it really freaked me out like it's quite frightening yeah it is it's really scary like because i do believe that people have like exact copies like exact doppelgangers out there i think i would freak out if i if i ran into mine i mean one time i did google myself and (laughs) and I, i went into google images and there was a lady posting beautiful burlesque images of herself I think maybe she was a burlesque model or something or like a pinup model. And she had the same name as me. And she really looked like me. It was really scary. And wow. for just one moment, I was like, did I take burlesque pictures? Like what? <laughs> like, honestly, Do you think I was you can con- find her again. I want to see her. Definitely. I'll, I'll see if I can find some images and I'll, I'll post them on Instagram. Okay, I'm going to see if I can do that with my image as well. And see if I can find my doppelganger. Yeah, it was really scary. Like for a moment, I thought, have I dissociated to the point that I'm like living out this other identity <laughs> as a burlesque model? Maybe yeah. you have, for, re- for reasons unknown, you have to disassociate in order to be a burlesque model. Yeah. Like exactly. you're, you know, you're like super ego won't let you do it. Um, yeah. Society has shamed me. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so now I have to live a double life. Um, but it's I mean, like I was that episode yeah. of Broad City where, um, <laughs> where like they where I can't remember either of their names, but the one with the like the long straight hair gets like so drunk that she becomes her like alter ego in like a speakeasy. Yes, and everyone like knows her by a different name, and apparently she goes there all the time. <laughs> but she only goes there when she gets blackout drunk, and she doesn't know that she that she doesn't know that she has this life maybe that's oh you oh my god <laughs> that explains why there's so many gaps in my memory yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah like that scene really it was dazzling but also really scary because when you have an exact copy like that where someone looks so much like you and it makes you doubt yourself and 
where you were and what you were doing in that moment, if there's photographic evidence, even if it's just for a fraction of a second. Mm. It's, it's the idea that your very identity can come into question so radically because of the presence of a lookalike that is scary. Because we tend to think of identity as like this solid thing that you know, we hold on to is like this concrete thing that we attach ourselves to and we know everything about it, especially I feel like in modern culture, like with identity politics and the the kind of promotion of, I guess, in a way, promoting your immutable characteristics, you know, um, for cultural value. I feel like that sells a little bit of the promise that these things are constants in a doubtful world, you know? Mm. So when when the doppelganger can so easily introduce this dimension of uncertainty in you, like, oh my gosh, like, was I really there? What was I doing? Is that me? Who am I? You know, like, it's, we, it's, it starts to like reveals the more porous, more blurred edges of identity, which can ve- be very tra- traumatic. I think people are having it now when they look at their old tweets from five years ago. <laughs> yes. And it's like, it's very traumatic because like, if they don't, if they're not like outwardly like racist, they're at least Mm. like, say, using language they wouldn't have used, like they sound really uncool, they're really annoying, (laughs) you know, all of these kind of like, people are being confronted with their past selves a lot more these days. Whereas we're documenting ourselves. Because we're documenting ourselves. So previously, if you were annoying at 21, which everyone is, you could be allowed to forget it, but not anymore. That is so true. It's like you're you're confronted with your cringe double from the past. Your cringe double who's always, always annoying and shouldn't have worn that or done that to their eyebrows. Oh my God. No, I feel you. Like, I agree with Karen Kilgariff from My Favourite Murder in this. Like, eyebrows are the indication of insanity. Like, if someone has weird eyebrows, like, they're at the very least, like, not mature yet. And mm. so, and I think... Yeah, yeah. Like when you, if you like, finally stop doing shit to your eyebrows, and you're like, they're pretty much how they should look, like how they naturally look, then you're you've grown up, you've grown as a person. <laughs> oh, that's a great cultural indicator. Mm. But yeah, like just in general, this film. I don't know if there's even a true resolution of it that we could either of us could offer. At least I can't. You know, I can only speak for myself. But I feel like it was a very ambivalent film, mm. but yet also kind of very hopeful about the presence of a doppelganger kind of like making you feel reassured that you're you're never really alone there's always someone else out there you may never even meet them you know I mean this 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 film obviously was pre-internet so um maybe if you know they had gone to the same like reddit you know subreddit or something (laughs) they would have they would have actually gotten to know each other and and communicated more directly. But I just I just like this idea that's provoked in this film that we do have doubles out there in the sense that there are people out there who feel the world the way that we do. They mm. process their environment in the same way and they suffer like we do. And that that in itself is a really reassuring idea that even if the, if it seems like you're really alone in your in your own moment of suffering, actually you're not. You know, there's someone else who suffers the way that you do. And so you have that companion spiritually always with you. That's lovely, Mary. I think that's a nice <laughs> thought for this film. Yeah. And I feel like it isn't, it, it's, it pays a little bit of an homage to Otto Rank and, uh, you know, the initial belief that doubles were this nice thing, you know, this mm. sort of generator of reassurance and comfort. But then <laughs> we turn to face off 
where the double is actually a very frustrating thing and could be a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move to Face Off. Let's um, do it. Face Off 1997. Mm. Sean Archer is an FBI agent who has obsessively dedicated his career to catching terrorist and sociopath Caster Troy. After Troy's assassination attempt on Archer ended in the death of Archer's small son, Michael. Although the team eventually catch Troy and his younger brother and accomplice Pollux, Troy is knocked into a coma before Archer can learn the location of the bomb they planted and Pollux refuses to talk. Archer's dedication to stopping Troy is revealed to have made him unpopular both at work and home. But despite promising to work on his relationship with his family, he's persuaded to undergo a top-secret face transplant with Troy so that he can learn the location of the bomb. However, Troy unexpectedly wakes from his coma and havoc ensues. (laughs) I think I did quite well. Oh, yes. (laughs) You did very well with what you were given. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say, John Woo wooed me with this. Um, Yeah. Very good, very good. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, an action film fan anyway, but this for me is one of my top 10. It's completely absurd and bonkers. It's completely crazy, but it is very entertaining. And I think anytime you have two OTT actors paired with one OTT director, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I had to keep pushing the laptop away from me throughout this film because it's just every, everyone starts at like 110 and they don't ramp down ever. No, and everyone's like shouting at each other. No one's like, no one's lines make sense. Everyone's character is like overreacting and totally ridiculous. Like every single movement is over the top of it everyone. Is. Like not just these two, these two, no. ladies, but everyone in the office, um, everyone in the home, everyone is just like overreacting big time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a very stressful film experience, but it's also like, it's very lovable. And I hadn't seen it since I saw it when I was a teenager, like oh, a wow. young teenager. Um, so I haven't seen it since then. And it was quite, it was really enjoyable to watch it. I didn't remember certain details about it. Yeah. Um, like I remember Nicolas Cage's character being sort of like the, the epitome of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't remember John Travolta's character being as unlikable or as, it was kind of like you have I don't feel like they're doubles as in as much as like they're like an id and a super ego without an ego mm-hmm. in between. You know, oh, wow. because um Nicolas Cage is just like drives, like impulsive yeah. drives, like sexual drives, like mainly sexual drives. And then John Travolta is telling everyone off all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and he and then so you have these like two kind of broken parts of the psyche um and the and like they kind of and then they switch and then by the end of the film they've kind of like merged into this one person who who can kind of take responsibility for the product of the id which is like this little boy Mm. but then can also like enjoy the benefits that they're responsible like the responsibility of the superego has afforded them yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, it does. They're two people on the surface, like two separate people in theory. They're acting as a mirror for the other's unpleasant impulses mm. or unpleasant um, drives, whether that's a super ego, authoritarian, ty- tyrannical impulse of John Travolta mm. or the other way around, the fun loving, completely insane, maybe cocaine abuser. Yes. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
Nicolas Cage, who is like a womanizer and he loves extravagant things. And he, he he's really into Lux as well. Like he yes. is a very fr- frivolous guy. Um. <laughs> this, I do find, you know, apparently like John Travolta objected to the script because it like, like Nicolas Cage keeps saying that John Travolta is ugly. John Travolta was like, John Travolta was like, no, I don't think anyone's going to understand this. (laughs) Wow, I'm demonstrably very attractive, and John was like, it's okay. It is actually just a joke. Like, it's going to be okay. The audience knows that you're very good looking. Um, Oh my, so unsensitive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, and like the film, the the script does dig at John Travolta, like because there was that whole thing in the '90s about how John Travolta was getting fat. Yeah, and, you know, John Travolta's body looks so different, and they do say like, "We'll give you a little tummy tuck." Oh yeah, like, in the, it's like don't be mean to John Travolta. Like he's just oh. it's just normal happens in normal people's bodies. Like I know. Mm. Um, I mean, actually, I, I found out later that it was initially written for Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> oh my god, that would have been amazing. I know. This definitely cemented Nicolas Cage as. A meme lord, I believe. Yeah, because, definitely. Oh my god, he is so memeable. Like the eyes bulging is incredible, and just everything. Like you know that scene where he's laughing. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen that gift so many times, and I could never remember where it was from because I couldn't quite. I saw this film years ago as well. I think around the time when it first released, and I could never locate what that laughing gift was. And when I spotted it in in this film. I felt truly like euphoric. It was like finally, like I know yeah. I've solved the mystery of this gift. Um, I think they do very you, well playing each other as well. Oh, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting exercise for any actor to have to try and imitate, his, you know, his his or her colleague. Yeah, um, like, it is know, really the, interesting. Uh, the, I read quite a lot about the making of this film, and when they were initially <laughs> looking for investment, like the producers were like, "Yeah, but how much makeup would it take to make them look like each other?" And like the script <laughs> was like, "No, no, you don't understand. <laughs> like, they'll just play. They'll. It's the same actor." <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> Like it was gonna be like, what's that film? Like it's gonna be like the white chicks, but um, right. like, of but there, it would be like, oh my God. <laughs> like Nicolas Cage prosthetics like piled on top of John Travolta's face. That's amazing. <laughs> I'd see that movie as well, <laughs> just for the record. Um, <laughs> I feel like in this episode we've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous, yeah, but definitely. but it's okay. We're we're all good with that here. Um, one of the things that made me almost like die from laughing is when, when you know, the line where, um, so Nicolas Cage as Sean Archer has been captured and he now has to confront Castor Troy, you know, in the body of John Travolta or yes. whatever, when they, when they have that confrontation in the, in that crazy prison. <laughs> and when John Travolta, when John Travolta goes, you're going to be in here for the next hundred years. <laughs> There's no like, there's no consistency as to who these people are, and like, no. then there's no kind of like. The thing that really made me laugh is the bit where you first see Dominique Swain, um, yes. who is the daughter, who is who played Lilita very wonderfully. 
Um, yeah, like, interesting like, little like reference there. Yeah, to this one. Very interesting, and like where you get you first get your shot of Dominique Swain, and like the character, and you were like expecting something horrendous. It's like you know, someone made a crack about her. she looks at school, she got into a fight, like da, da, da. And then she turns around, and she's just got some eyeliner on. Like that's yeah. all. That's all it is. And then, and then he's like, "Who are you supposed to be?" It's like she's got eyeliner on. She's like, "That's all." She's not like. She's not like cutting her face. Like, there's no, what, what is, why is everyone reacting so much? And then she's like, you don't even know who I am. And she runs out of the kitchen. And it's like, why are you running? Like, you will get out of the kitchen just as fast if you just yeah. go at a normal pace. There's no need for you to run. And she like runs like Phoebe from Friends. You know, that episode oh, yeah. where Phoebe runs. And it just like it just oh kind of sets like the tone for everyone's interactions with everyone. It's yes. just like everyone's like totally at cross purposes. Nothing anyone says makes sense. Everyone's like completely forgotten who they are. Like it's it's just, it's, it's it's like the most insane and bonkers film, and I just love it so much. Oh, me too. Like mm-hmm. I, I, this kind of thing is just this is pure folly. But it yeah. is so much fun. Like the whole John Travolta touching people you know that habit that he has where he touches people's faces like so annoying in a post-covid world i have to say i found that very distressing i would find that so distressing if someone did that to me all the time you know like like he does people when they're like in the middle of a sentence like stop it like (laughs) also like just this the bit where they have the microchip implanted in the larynx to Mm. change the voice I mean, the doctor says that it's like very sensitive, but like, how come it never dislodges even during all those fight scenes? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Before they implanted the chip and when like Nicolas Cage was speaking, but he still had like John Travolta's voice. It was so silly. It was just amazing. Everything's amazing. Oh my God. Like like, his lip syncing was a bit off as well. And he's like, I can't bear it. Are you? Fuck you. Fuck you. Hey, I sound like me. (laughs) It's just like... (laughs) <laughs> it's like they're all like children <laughs> I know I know I don't know what I, I really don't know what the directives were from John Wu was he like telling them like okay let's just do a rehearsal take you know like the warm-up take but then I he think, just ended up using that take like I, I don't understand he just, I think he totally lost control of them I think yeah. like this I think the second he hired Travolta and Cage it was just like you know what they, they yeah. just let them do what they want to do yeah, like there is no, there's no rhyme or reason to how they're playing it. <laughs> no, not at all. And there's just like central moments in the film where there's no explanation. Like when Nicolas Cage jumps off into the ocean after escaping from the prison. Yes. Like why didn't the helicopter cops just wait for him to refer- re- resurface like and catch him as he's swimming into shore? Like why didn't they have any patience to wait like maybe 20 more seconds? You know, <laughs> They just flew away. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, definitely. It doesn't. It's not the well, the most well put together like narrative. But... I watched the honest trailers for this. Oh. It's very funny. Oh, okay. I will take a look. There's a hilarious line where they basically say like John Travolta sleeps with Joan Allen, <laughs> and she doesn't even recognize his body. You know. <laughs> like, and then true. the guy says like. He says, did they did they switch dongs too? Because dong off is a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> dong off. I want to see that. Maybe they did. I mean, they take like the bullet out and stuff like that. You know, like he's got that bullet scar. Oh, yeah. Um, 
and yeah like <laughs> so like and they do give like you know they give uh like travolta tummy tuck so that he can be like nick nick cage so maybe they took that fat and they put it into nick cage's tummy and it just didn't detail that or it got cut like that's oh my god i need so many answers that must be you know when you know nicholas cage is like deranged enough like that his character would be like put the fat in too like you know (laughs) definitely definitely um yeah and just the whole like bit with the speedboat chase you know yeah and and you could clearly see in like the slow motion of the of the boat crashing into shore and exploding like the the characters are clearly stunt doubles like just, they yeah. haven't even made any attempt to change that well it's interesting because i listened to an interview with margaret cho who yeah. is like oh like i just feel like her character deserves so much better in this because she's just like constantly <laughs> getting shouted at um and she's amazing but she yes. said each, each person in the movie had a stunt double like everyone um, and oh. she described them as the physically perfect versions of ourselves. Oh, really? Um, and in like interviews about Face Off, because they're doing a lot of interviews about it now because they're remaking it. That's right. Um, in interviews, like if they can't get the person, they just interview the stunt doubles. I've noticed <laughs> it in quite a lot of quite a lot of interviews. Like you know, Nicholas Cage isn't available, John Travolta's not available, so they interview the stunt doubles. See, that in it is so interesting in itself. It just really goes to show how much the stunt doubles were like a vital uh, force in this film. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just an afterthought. Like these people were just as, they, it's, it's like they were treated as A-listers almost. I mean, yeah. which is really, it's kind of a cool thing. I think not enough stunt doubles get their moment in the limelight. Um, but at the same time, because, I mean, I'm not really uh, familiar with John Woo's other films. I don't, I, so I can't speak about um, Face Off in the context of his wider filmography. Because this was his most successful Hollywood film. And I'm just, I'm just trying to think of, of maybe like his Chinese releases, whether there might have been a lot of doubling in terms of like the genre of action movie and maybe the influence of Hollywood on Chinese films or vice versa even, you know, mm-hmm. where Hollywood might have drawn a lot of inspiration from Chinese action movies. So I just I can't help but wonder whether, like, just at the core of this film and the story where one character maybe just is frustrated and angry about seeing aspects of himself in his nemesis, mm-hmm. you know, th- I think that's what really, for me, drives this film, where prior to the operation... There's like little tidbits of information that are revealed about Caster Troy. And you can see like Sean Archer as the cop. He like he's morally judging. But at the same time, there's like a little sparkle in his eye. Like he's a little bit jealous Mm. of like his lifestyle, especially the women stuff, you know, because when he returns posing as Caster Troy and he's among like his fellow criminals, (laughs) He kind of takes to that moment quite quickly, you know, like he, he seems to enjoy a little bit. He also is like fighting against himself. And I think that maybe Caster Troy enjoys that same doubling effect as well, like leading uh, a powerful police force, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like being respected and, um, yeah, yeah, the notoriety, 
Well, I think that's the thing that they can enjoy the fruits of each other's labor, like from yes, where, you know, like <laughs> Troy has like the ability to enjoy being successful and looked up to and respected and liked, which yes. he is, even if he's like horrible to everyone. Yeah, and Archer can enjoy. <laughs> having a son and uh, oh, yeah. like you know all of these things that the other that the other character isn't able to do the freedom a little bit like the libertine the element yeah of his lifestyle where because yeah. he's just like married in a suburb or something he's maybe he doesn't want to admit that at times he finds that dull or whatever mm-hmm. so yeah you're right like the, I, I like the way you put it that they enjoy each other's the fruits of each other's labor they do and they also like they are good for each other's families <laughs> Like in a way, <laughs> you don't really want to. Like you kind of expect expect Troy as Archer to like assault Dominique Swain, um, mm. but he doesn't. He just teaches her how to defend herself. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gina Gershon. Oh, Gina Gershon. Yeah. Had you know told the real Troy that he has a son, like he would have responded really badly. <laughs> but like Archer knows like how to be a father to a child. So in, like, oh, a, in wow. a way that he doesn't know how to be a father to a teenager. But like, I guess like, I guess <laughs> Troy. I mean, I guess Troy just has more experience with teenage girls than Archer does. Like, but not in <laughs> probably like not in a very good way. <laughs> but. Oh my god! And and Archer has more experience with five year old boys. <laughs> Do you remember that? That sounds so wrong. <laughs> Um, like in um, uh, I, I just keep referencing TV shows today but in 30 Rock there's a, a point where Alec Baldwin is going out with Julianne Moore who's like his high school sweetheart um, oh, yeah. and she's like married with kids or like, and he's like a you know a 60 year old like rich bachelor and you know she comes to visit with her sons to New York and she's, and she's like oh, I left them in the hotel you know what it's like getting teenagers out of bed in the morning and he goes I do <laughs> but not in the way that you mean <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wonder then if it's Castro Troy teaching the teenage daughter about self defense, and then she ends up attacking him with a knife and yeah. twisting in his leg to get free from him. I wonder if that's—I I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but maybe it's something where a good parent teaches their child to separate, like an individuate kind of thing. Yeah. I think that that is I think that is intended. I mean maybe not maybe not intended, but it definitely works. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um because what I thought about the whole film in its entirety when it finished and I also wrote this on Twitter is Face Off is about a man who switches places with a psychopath, risking himself and his family's life so that his daughter will take her nose ring out. <laughs> And that is what it is. Like at it the is. end, Dominique Spain doesn't have any eyeliner on. Her nose ring's gone. She's like a happy, like bubbly teenager. She's a wholesome life. girl. She's a wholesome girl. But is the whole reason he's like angry and upset because his daughter's like a wannabe punk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And maybe the whole bit with him chasing after this like crazy terrorist and that kind of personification of all that is wrong with the world is just an, a very elaborate extended fantasy about the dangers that await his daughter. Yeah. So maybe we could just read it as like some crazy fever dream that he had at his desk, <laughs> you know, and he comes back and restores his family. And because, you know, like that bit where, um, cause in the opening scene when they're on like the merry-go-round. So in the, in that opening scene, 
Caster Troy aiming for Sean Archer, like to kill him. He's pointing his sniper, right? Yeah. And then the bullet. If someone would be like, he's on the merry-go-round, this is the perfect chance. (laughs) Right, exactly. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Oh, great. He's a moving target. Like, yes, exactly. This is is every sniper's dream. (laughs) It's an ideal scenario for. (laughs) I know. And then, of course, when the, the, the shot pierces through his body and ends um, and ends up killing his son, right? So what if, like, actually, this film really is about the, the guilt that Sean Archer carries, that maybe he, that he's the cause of death? You know, yes. he actually is carrying around this guilt that he killed his son inadvertently by putting his family in danger or something. Because there's a great scene when he's talking in the body of Castor Troy, He's, he's, he's confronting his wife, who's like doubtful. She doesn't know what's who's who, what's going on. There's a line where he says something along the lines of, I didn't kill our son. He's trying to convince himself of that. Yeah, you're right. The doubling is like a really great device to kind of explore th- those feelings and impulses that he doesn't want to admit he has. So it's mm-hmm. perf- It's so convenient just to project them onto this like cartoon character, you know? <laughs> who's like dressed as a priest but he's actually like setting up a bomb you know yeah Yeah, Um, I think that's really that's that's a really good reading of it I I kind of don't want them to make a remake because if without Nicolas Cage it's not going to be the same why (laughs) why do that like why remake films like this it doesn't make any sense it's like no it is just watch the original yeah like they want it to make more sense but like I don't want it to make more sense no I don't want it to make sense I want it to live in this yeah I wanted to live in the circus of absurdity that, that it is. Because it's not really about two people who swap faces. No. That's the thing. It doesn't no. it doesn't need to make sense in that way. It's about someone like right yeah, exactly as you say, like someone wrestling with the fact that they have personality traits and yes. that they don't like. Yeah, so it's, you just project them outward onto somebody else and then you can hate that person yeah you know they also face each other off like Mm -hmm. pointing guns at each other and they never shoot it's like they always hang in this strange balance of suspense and they can they conduct whole conversations (laughs) with guns pointing at each other's faces Mm -hmm. which kind of speaks to me as something that supports your theory about the hidden super ego facing off without this kind of mediation of the ego I do think that is I think you my theory leads off your theory mm-hmm. of like a person experiences a tragedy that they feel partially responsible for mm-hmm. so they like take their parts of their personality i.e the id that they feel not in control of and yeah. they become a monstrous superego who's like yeah. incapable of like responding to people without judgment um even like children and spouses and colleagues they have to kind of undergo this like battle in order to merge back together again. Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. That's so beautifully said. Mm. And I think the way, like the tone of the film has to be the way that it is. As I heard on another YouTube uh, video for this, like explaining face off, it makes perfect sense if you're on a lot of cocaine, (laughs) (laughs) but it's like, you, you kind of need to be in that turbulent mind space, you know, this is not the kind of story that can resolve itself or unfold just in a stable, chilled out moment. You mm. know, you, you kind of need to be really frantic and everything OTT because experientially that is how it feels when you're, when you haven't fully processed 
those uncomfortable feelings or those characteristics about yourself. Like that process of projecting and blaming other people and chasing after this villain in your head is crazy. Like it is OTT. Nothing, Nothing about that is supposed to be calm and measured and like rational you know I agree. um yeah so long live this type of film it's you know like <laughs> I, yeah i think it's wonderful i'm really glad that we did analyze it like in on the kind of the eve of its remake because yeah i think yeah it's about time someone spoke up for face off because i think yes. it's generally regarded as like total fun and amazing but like a load of nonsense but it yeah, didn't yeah. seem like a load of nonsense to me like actually it has I feel like it has a very it's very much about like a person grieving who can't yeah. accept like who can't accept aspects of their personality so has to externalize them yes and freak out yeah yeah absolutely I agree um well said I feel like that concludes this film for me me too um, I would say to our listeners like if you've got this far and haven't watched them yet I would watch it in the opposite order I would start with face off and then I would go oh, yeah. to Veronique just for a little palate cleanser just to calm down because face yeah. off is Veronique is the Valium to face off's cocaine like no. I think you need, you need a downer like you need, you need a downer definitely yeah exactly like maybe process those like OTT feelings in face off and then sort of reassure yourself about the double being an ultimate friend, not a foe. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I think that this uh, analysis leads on to something that I have to do, which is apologize for something that I said <laughs> in the last episode. <laughs> I offended um, a community, Sagittarius's. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I did it too. I participated. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, I haven't always been the greatest fan of Sagittarius's, but we haven't had that much luck in meeting the the best ones out there. It's true. I think I'm judging Sagittarius's by a certain group of people. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm going to not say the names of all of them, but one of them is Guy Bourdain, um, you know, creative that made a lot of other people suffer yeah. in pursuit of his art. And mm-hmm. so I think I've judged the whole community by small examples of the community. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, my wonder if part of that is that Sagittarius are our neighbours in the astro- astrological yeah. chart. And so there are obviously things that we share in common. Um, so maybe I'm externalising and blaming all yeah. of my bad qualities on Sagittarius <laughs> when in fact I have them within my own body. So I will try not to do that again. Um, and if I do uh, badmouth a member of the astrological uh, chart, I'll probably do Aquarius because who's an Aquarius? No one. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I mean, listen, that's actually really uh, nice of you to say. I think I, I do concur with a lot of what you said. I, you know, as I've said before on the pod, I have been the victim of bullying and my the person who bullied me was a Sagittarius. <gasps> and so I don't have, I have very you know, unresolved, conflicted feelings. And I know I shouldn't generalize. Um, you know, not everyone is, 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 is that psycho. I just think that it's just like a trauma. It's like a wound, you know, that hasn't fully healed. And so it's very convenient for me to just be like, okay, I'll just write off this entire star sign. <laughs> yeah, we can't do that just based on small amounts of negative. No. Also, my mum's a Sagittarius. And oh, there you go. So she's an, an angelic, angelic being. So. Yeah. Yeah. There so. you go. 
No, no, absolutely, absolutely, and and I do agree with the kind of neighborly like rivalry as well. Yeah, because um, we're both Scorpio. Actually, speaking of star signs, Krzysztof uh, Kieślowski, uh, a Cancer. Oh, of, of course, like that. He's so Cancerian. And what about John Woo? Okay, John Woo. This surprised me. He's a Taurus. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Really? No, because. I mean, he spends so much money. Like, <laughs> his films are crazy expensive. You've got yeah. to be comfortable with spending money if, you, if you're an action film director. And Tauruses, uh, you know, because they reside very much in the material realm. Yeah, that is true. My, um, my boyfriend's a Gemini, but he has Taurus aspects in, like, everywhere else. Like, Rising, Moon, whatever, Mars. Every, mm-hmm. like everything else is Taurus and he's oh. one of those people that he has like a really nice flat to live in even though it's like right on the edge of his budget at the moment because mm. he just knows like when he buys furniture he buys it like you know really beautifully like beautiful designer furniture oh. he just knows that like it's worth the investment he's one of those people that he's like one of the embodiments of that like whole principle that if you just spend money more will come along yes um and I don't have that at all like I'm very like I save and save and save and I get worried about buying things all the time Mm. um so yeah it's um, oh that's nice yeah it's a nice quality it's a nice quality it's a very nice quality I like that Tauruses have very good taste so that they love luxury they love luxury yeah Yeah. they're very sensual people so I can see that being in his um sort of chart if he is drawn to that kind of um that nice material aspect of living like yes I could see it um yeah and they're our astrological opposite so we get on with Taurus yeah definitely for sure I mean who doesn't though like they're pretty easy going no absolutely I mean Sigmund Freud Taurus respect Mm -hmm. um Um, but yeah, like I just, not, you convinced me because I, I think I was over attributing or associating like Torians being earth signs. So being very kind of like even keel, but Torians are not the same as Virgos and Capricorns. No. They have that edge, don't they? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, cause I don't think Kieslowski could have been anything else. <laughs> like no, definitely classic textbook cancer. Um, yeah, perfect. I will definitely going forward, I'm sure will offend a star sign. Um, so I apologize in advance if I do. Probably if you, you said Aquarius, I think I might offend. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm going to say Sagittarius. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just apologize. Do we just have, we have to apologize next week if you do I that. know, I know. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's like my nemesis in the chart, you know. With Aquarius, no, I'll, I'll, I'll try, just, I'll try. With Aquarius, I was just playing the odds because they actually are the least common star sign. Like, yeah, they're true. The yeah. least amount of people are Aquarius. So, like, <laughs> I, if I offend them, it's, like, the least likely that we'll have Aquarius listeners. So Statistically, you're, just, you're like, in the clear. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Mm. Actually, also just was reminded by my notes to just thank all our listeners who we I feel like we got such a warm response coming back with this new series. People that seem really happy with this topic. Thanks also to the new donors. Oh yes, we do have some new donors. Let me see if I can find their names. Natalie Ridgen. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. You're a new donor. And um from Tom Fowler. Thank you um, so much. And we also have a new recurring donation from Elisa Turner. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's lovely. Also, I have to shout out to my friend Grace, who the other day told me that she has been donating to us for mu- mu- uh, for a very long time. Oh. But she actually was donating to the Projection Booth podcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> when we, and so I was like, she was like, I'm going to donate to your Patreon. And I was like, I, we don't have a Patreon. And after some investigation, we found that she'd been donating to a different podcast. Um, because oh my goodness and, and I feel terrible because I feel terrible not only was she donated to the wrong podcast but she must have thought that I had not thanked yeah. her even oh once. bless her um so I feel like we're going to have to give her something like maybe yeah um, like maybe Grace um you can choose a film and we'll analyze it like yes you can have you can like be the like sponsor and creative director of one of our episodes <laughs> and we'll do one specially for you like whatever your favorite film is we'll do I it concur I'm um, on board and um, um pod takeover and I also know that you know Grace I believe will make a film one day um, ah yeah, because and she's like a very talented artist. So mm. um, Grace Morgan Pardo, everyone like look her up, find her on Instagram. She sells them for paintings at the moment, and they're beautiful. I bought one a couple of months ago. Um, wow! And uh, yeah, if she does make a film, which I'm sure she will, because um, she has kind of a filmmaker family, um, mm. then as soon as she makes her first film, we'll have her on the pod, and she can be our guest, and uh, that's how we'll repay her for the wasted donations. Oh, <laughs> so sweet. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that, that's incredible um, revelation. If anyone, can, if anyone else thinks they're donating to us, can they just double check? Yeah, <laughs> they're not yeah. donating to a similarly titled podcast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure that the projection booth podcast is a great outfit as well. Yeah. But just make sure that you know if you are trying to support us, um, double check just to make sure. But thank you so much to Grace. Absolutely. Yeah. And yes, I, I concur. I would love for her to, you know, to take the driver's seat uh, for an episode. And I, I you know, her wish is, is our command. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever want, she Grace. wants. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, on that note, um, we will be coming back to you in a fortnight. Okay, so next time we're going to be looking at clones. So we'll be looking at Moon and the Broken. Yay. Yay. Exciting. Um, This was a really fun episode. Thank you so much, Sarah. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. I thought I saw you in the battleship, but it was only a lookalike. She was nothing but a vision trick. Under the warning light, she was close. Close enough to be your ghost But my chances turned to toast When I asked her if I could call her your name I thought I saw you in the rusty hook Huddled up in a wicker chair I wandered over for a closer look And kissed whoever was sitting there She was close And she held me very tightly Till I asked awfully politely Please, can I call you?